Hi. 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 Hello. I'm curious about. I'm curious about. I'm curious about. I'm curious about, I'm curious about building open, authentic, loving relationship. I'm curious about jealousy. I'm curious about polyamory. Does it just mean that you're fucking all the time? How can I tell my parents that my partner is already married? I'm curious about... How do you know when you're too busy to have another relationship? I'm curious about dominant and subordinate relationships. I'm curious about sexual health. How can relationships can evolve with people evolve as they grow and change? Because many people do eroticize humiliation, um, and erotic humiliation feels really different from non-consensual humiliation or Mm -hmm. the feelings of non-consensual humiliation can be reappropriated or re-channeled into Mm -hmm. consensual uh, erotic humiliation. Welcome to the Curious Fox podcast for those challenging the status quo in love, sex, and relationships. My name is Effie Blue. And today we're curious about consensual non-consent. Since the beginning of the show, and even its early iterations, Curious Fox's mission has always been to delve deep into taboo subjects when it comes to love, sex, and relationships. Given the gravity of consent when it comes to sexuality, and frankly, life, the idea of playing with the sanctity of consent surely feels like the taboo subject of them all. To help me explore consensual non-consent, also referred to as CNC, I reached out to Hi there, I'm Tina Horn. I'm a writer and educatrix and media maker. I'm the host and producer of the Why Are People Into That podcast, which is going to be a book from Hachette uh, in 2024. And I'm also the writer creator of the Safe Sex science fiction comic book series. I knew Tina from her podcast and the awesome workshops she hosts. I first met her face-to-face, finally, back when we were doing in-person events in Brooklyn. She agreed to give a talk at Consider This, the Curious Fox's annual conference we used to organize, well, pre-COVID. Those were the days. Her talk about how, ultimately, we're all polyamorous because we should consider our primary relationship to be the one that we have with ourselves was definitely worth, well, considering for sure. It definitely brought up a point of view most people hadn't considered thus far. On our podcast, Tina takes a deep dive into all the weird and wonderful sexy things people are into and loves to explore taboos. So I started by asking her how she defines the tabooist kink. I love taboos. I love Mm -hmm. transgressing them and smashing them. And I love doing it with my friends. Taboo smashing, that is. And (laughs) doing it also. Uh, (laughs) So what is consensual non-consent? I mean, it's a BDSM term. And like a lot of BDSM terms, it is sort of awkward Mm -hmm. (laughs) to say, I think. But uh, I've, I've done a lot of thinking about what a better term might be. And I, I think that the sort of built in paradox of CNC, as it's often abbreviated, actually works really well to describe what it is, which is essentially any kind of erotic power play that involves force and control. Okay, given that it's a paradox, which also makes it juicy and exciting, of course, can we unpack this idea of how something can be both consensual and non-consensual at the same time? Sure. I mean, in that way, it's almost 
any BDSM play could fall under the definition of consensual non-consent, right? Because like all BDSM is about circumscribing a space where the players agree that things have a different meaning than they usually do. Mm-hmm. Something that I something that I talk about in my book, Wired People Into That, uh, which will be out in 2024, something that I talk about when I teach consensual non-consent uh, workshops is an idea, the idea of erotic irony. And what I mean by that is that irony is when the literal meaning is the exact opposite of the implied meaning, right? And so in the case of consensual non-consent, almost the scariest way of talking about it is to say that consensual in consensual non-consent, you have the power to play with no's that mean yes, right? And that that's really where something as simple as transforming no the meaning of yeses and nos is is where that taboo comes in right mm-hmm. that taboo that you were talking about mm-hmm. but consensual non-consent is also a place where pain can be pleasure and that's erotic irony right mm-hmm. or degradation verbal humiliation or a degrading scenario or a scenario that someone feels is degrading all of a sudden can be respectful can be the most respectful and the most care and potentially even love that people can show one another. So that's kind of like the psychological edge play that is going on with consensual non-consent. It's interesting, right? Because I think the most common interpretation of consensual non-consent is people's minds go to rape fantasies. Right? Mm-hmm. It's kind of most of the time where, you know, People who are not looking into the nuance of it, they hear it, they, initially they're confused by it. You know, if you're not familiar with these terminologies, like, what does that mean? This feels, comp- you know, contradictory. And then if you kind of sit with it for a little bit, your mind tends to go to rape fantasies, right? And mm-hmm. it's something that, you know, I think more common than people realize. Um, I think it's a source of pain, guilt, and shame. And I think the idea that it's actually more co- more common than you imagine is hopefully some sort of a remedy to, to those feelings. Um, mm. But that's kind of where people end up. Um, I think what I'm hearing from you is n- actually, no, there, it's much broader mm-hmm. umbrella and it covers so much more than that. Can you give some examples of like, how else can it look like? Well, to be clear, consensual non-consent can absolutely be about rape fantasies. Mm-hmm. And again, that's where we're playing with fire, right? Mm-hmm. We're playing with taboo. And even the idea that you would desire a playful scenario that reimagines or replicates things that you don't want to literally happen to you, right? Going back to the irony, like you, mm-hmm. you don't literally want to cause harm you don't literally want to experience that kind of agony, but then you have the desire to play with elements of that in your personal consensual sex life. And so, yeah, uh, consensual and non-consent can be about rape fantasies. It can be about rape play 
like a scenario in which like some that, you know, and that's why I try to break it down into like, well, what are we talking about when we're talking about rape and sort of breaking it down to its more um, fundamental sort again, like psychological elements of Mm -hmm. say force and control um, or fraud or coercion or persuasion or inappropriateness. So yeah. And that could look a lot of different ways Mm -hmm. depending on what the player's eroticize about that dynamic but i really think that consensual non-consent manifests in most forms of bondage play whether it's rope or leather straight jacket (laughs) Mm -hmm. um and it certainly can manifest in a lot of sadomasochistic play a lot of pain play because a lot of consensual non-consent is also like fundamentally about fear and fear play and a lot of pain play is also about kind of like triggering like a physiological response that is oftentimes thrilling and satisfying um, because of how much it feels like fear to the nervous system. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and I think that a lot of different role plays that aren't like cat burglar, like housewife, ravishment uh, or like harlequin romance ravishment can actually incorporate elements of consensual non-consent um because so so many role plays actually like can be broken down into power dynamics and like archetypes of different kinds of relationship to power and even authority uh and that's definitely something that i also talk about and teach in my workshops, whether they're consensual non-consent workshops per se, or in my like dirty talk workshops and role play workshops. A lot of the time, what we're exploring is how do you break down your desires into archetypes? There's also like a pragmatic reason to break things down into archetypes um, because archetypes by their nature are more universal mm-hmm. and when you can break things down into more universal archetypes i think it could be a really great tool for compassion for mm-hmm. other people's desires but also self-compassion mm-hmm. i think that what a lot of people are looking for when they do feel shame about their desires or their fantasies they want that like reassurance that um that they're not bad um but also that they're not abnormal now i think abnormal is a great way to be but Mm -hmm. when you appreciate that things are normal in the sense that they're common in the sense that a lot of people share your desires or fantasies then i think that that's actually more useful instead of trying to be normal (laughs) or trying to find a way to be normal or a validation that you are objectively normal i think that going back to the like archetype of power dynamic exercise or even like care like character or caricature i think that that's actually a way to universalize your desire that helps you to connect to other people which is or or like humanity (laughs) in Mm -hmm. general which is like what are what are we what are we doing this for if not to try to connect with other people in whatever however that looks for us 
there's so much that <laughs> um, there's so much that it's it's like my my brain is firing in so many different directions and I think that one of the things that coming up for me is this idea of um, definitely like normal and I think normalizing right I think the mm. archetype work that you're talking about is less about what's normal or trying to be normal but more more about normalizing those desires by saying hey like these are these are so common that they exist in in archetypes. And I think that's definitely normalizing and I can totally see how that exercise can help you help alleviate some of this guilt and shame and the negative feelings around wanting those things for sure. Yeah. Like the other thing that came up for me is this idea of play and playfulness, right? Like playing, uh, it's, it's, a, it's a verb that we use a lot in kink spaces and sexual spaces. And, and for me, I've always associated it with this idea of like being playful mm. and kind of cheery and, and playful. And I think when I'm talking to you about this, about not, uh, consensual non-consent and the archetypes, I'm now realizing it's actually a play in the more classic sense of the play, like the classics. Like we are now putting on a play and it doesn't necessarily mean it's about being playful, but it is now a, a, a space that we step into that is not entirely who we are. And we're sort of having this exaggerated, coordinated experience that is, that is play in the most classical sense of the play. Does that, does that make sense? It does. And actually the word that you use exaggerated, I think is really useful for thinking about consensual non-consent because it is kind of like you're you're playing with the most audacious colors in the box of crayons mm. mm-hmm. <laughs> you know and and i think and i think that even you know going back to erotic irony sometimes people are able to be at their most playful in the original sense of what you were talking about sort of like lighthearted with like levity when they are also exploring their darker fantasies that that has been anecdotally like that has been my experience that like the more exploration that there is around dark fantasies and maybe even like doing shadow work the more levity and liberation is Mm -hmm. possible because mm-hmm. it's not so dark anymore i guess when you are stepping in those places and experiencing them they're not so weighed down by the darkness of them like you you embody them you engage with them so they kind of lose their weight i guess in in, in a kind of um the op- opposite of levity kind of weight like they're sort of weight on your shoulders holding you down kind of way yeah that's right going back to this idea of, of archetypes which i think is super helpful is a way to look at that also this idea that you know how do you want to feel like so you want to engage in consensual non-consent which is a big umbrella like okay that's what we're doing like okay what are we what are we actually doing um and a good place to start is like how do you want to feel like this is kind of a good good place to start the way that you're talking about archetypes makes me kind of think of that like those archetypes are somehow connected to this like what is what do we want to embody when we say we want to get we want to play in this non-consensual non-consent play place and then what do we want to embody within that space? Like, how, how do you want to feel? And that's kind of where the archetype's coming. Is that, is that sort of what you're saying? Absolutely. So, like, if you'll go on a journey with me, can you name for me a way that you think that people want to feel sexually? Mm-hmm. Desired. So, if people want to feel desired. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, this is fantastic. So... 
let's think about this in terms of archetype, right? Like mm-hmm. what is a what is an example of a highly desired type of person? Mm-hmm. Okay, let me play this game with you. Um <laughs> this kind of um, I guess the thing that goes, like this kind of like goddess archetype. A goddess archetype is wonderful. So what are so when we're thinking about um, goddesses, and this is great too because this is highly customizable, right? Everybody mm-hmm. has very subjective relationship to like what they first think of when they're thinking of a goddess, probably depending on their um, their cultural circumstances, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so, I, like, I've just been reading this book, uh, Song of Achilles, uh, for my like light reading. It's essentially like Iliad slash fic. It's like queer Iliad slash fiction and so um so i'm thinking about greek goddesses so when we think about greek goddesses um you know like uh we might think about aphrodite the goddess of love right you know you want to talk about consensual non-consent like <laughs> greek um, mythology is full of it no <laughs> it, it greek mythology <laughs> yeah. is full of it and you know um yeah. and and there there is um th- this is this is useful this is instructive because in greek mythology um there is often uh, very much a blurring of the lines between sex and rape. So if we're thinking about Aphrodite and we're thinking about Aphrodite as like the ultimate in desirability, um, mm-hmm. what are some of the qualities that we associate with her? What are some of the actions that we associate with her? You know, we are going to associate her with like an otherworldly beauty, with an otherworldly sort of sort of grace. Um, we're definitely going to think about worship right? Um, we're going to maybe think about sacrifice, uh, maybe human sacrifice. <laughs> um, you know, so then you, you want to start to think about, once, once you're thinking about an archetype, then you want to think about relationship dynamics, right? So, you know, this highly desired goddess, like who does she have relationships to? Um, her relationship to mortals is going to be different from her relationship to fellow gods there's like a clear power hierarchy when it comes to the gods so you know her relationship to like lesser gods or like you know like human hybrids demigods exactly Mm -hmm. um is is going to be is going to be really different so then like if you're coming up with this role play if you want to feel desired and in being desired you want to embody the goddess aphrodite you know that's Mm -hmm. really interesting because like she in some ways is a a high status figure, but there are other ways in which there, there are like maybe her being high status is what you want to embody, but maybe the, the friction that you want to create the dynamics that you want to create the static that you want to create has to do with her losing her status in Mm, some way, because that status is so valuable. Mm -hmm. Um, And what are, again if we're like talking about antiquity like you know honor uh, like honor is a very like profound way to have your status lowered and like all of these things honor status worship like these are things that are often like very like erotically charged for a lot of people like you can hear it even probably in the way that i'm like getting excited talking about them um (laughs) and so you know if you're playing if you're doing a consensual non-consent scene or exploring consensual non-consent with, mm-hmm. let's say, one other partner. Because when we get into 
multiples, then then you got to think about all of the different relationships mm-hmm. and dynamics and like configurations of power and hierarchies of power. Mm-hmm. But let's start simple and scale, right? If you want to play or explore consensual non-consent with one other person and you want to be desired and you want to be the goddess, then the next step in the exercise beyond thinking about what those relationship dynamics are is like, so who, what is the archetype that the other person wants to embody? Right. But it really does actually go back to your question of like, well, how does the other person want to feel? Mm. And that is part of how you can even like kind of solve this puzzle in a way that is hopefully kind of fun where if the other person wants to feel like in control, then you got to think about, well, what are, what are the ways that someone could control a powerful goddess? Mm. And, you know, and then maybe part of the significance of the story that you're telling, the erotic story that you're telling, that you're exploring, that you're improvising is like the drama of the goddess being brought down to size. Mm -hmm. So that's just an improv game brainstorm from me. Yeah. But you could see how that could, that same structure of Mm. asking these questions about how do you want to feel and like what aesthetically is erotic to you. So if like the Greek aesthetic like charges you up, that's great. Mm. But like maybe it is another kind of goddess Mm -hmm. that you could, uh, you could also like apply that to like a, a virtually like infinite number of scenes yeah i i love it because it is both imaginative creative fun and and instructive at the same time and insightful at the same time so i completely understand what you're saying you can have this you can start with this goddess um archetype let's say aphrodite i i you know i love that image and then you're you're totally right in the way that the desire also these things are subjective and this kind of inquiry allows us to really get on the same page because like you said to your point this idea of desired could be worshipful desire so it's coming Mm -hmm. from the the sort of the earthly the humans that kind of desiring the goddess showing that in worship um versus she's desired by a peer god where it's like this explosive mutual desire for each other and in each other's power and sort of ravishment in that kind of way or it could be you know some demigod that tricks her into you know, a situation where she is lowered, lowered, and this is it, all of these are desire. It's yes. just it's still we're going. What does that look like in in the in the roles that we want to play in the dynamic that we want to create? And I think th- this sort of playful way of thinking about it is so insightful, and it just provides for fun inquiry. It does, and do you see what happened when you started riffing on the archetypes? Is that you identified one form of tension or drama or dynamic and i don't mean drama like gossip i mean drama like uh like in a classical way like yeah Yeah. or like anime like sexually like sexual Mm. drama i don't mean like uh like a couple having a fight i mean Mm. um drama like uh like excitement essentially Mm -hmm. but you you identified a sort of archetypical dynamic Mm -hmm. which is deception you mentioned Mm -hmm. like someone like a demigod like tricking mm-hmm. the goddess right mm-hmm. so like mm-hmm. what does deception bring up um it, it brings up like if if the goddess was fooled into having sex with someone and then there's like that revelation that's humiliating right mm-hmm. and like erotic humiliation 
now you've just like opened up a whole portal of possibilities, Mm -hmm. um, right? Because many people do eroticize humiliation um, and erotic humiliation feels really different from non-consensual humiliation or Mm -hmm. the feelings of non-consensual humiliation can be reappropriated or rechanneled into Mm -hmm. consensual uh, erotic humiliation. You are definitely, it's something that you said at the top of our conversation, you are playing with fire. You really are playing with fire in in all you know in in so in so many ways physical mental emotional um ethical so you definitely are playing with with fire but that's why it's exciting you know right <laughs> because it is it is the whole it is the whole package <laughs> yeah 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 which brings me to my question uh which is the the title of your upcoming book why are people into that <laughs> why are we into that <laughs> Oh yeah, I mean, I like. I don't know if you have noticed, Effie, that people uh, want things that they can't have, uh-huh. <laughs> and people eroticize um, things that are verboten that they are not supposed to want, and even the the supposed to there uh, is doing a lot of work, right? Like, mm-hmm. uh, where do we get the ideas of what we are and aren't supposed to? want who we are and aren't supposed to be and so uh, i mean like why why are people into consensual non-consent i mean consensual non-consent definitely falls into the category of what in bdsm and fetish community um we call edge play Mm -hmm. and really that term is just a sort of like sort of a, a way to indicate that something is an advanced or intermediate kind of play. I think that pe- some people are like just into edge play for all kinds of reasons, maybe because they are really experienced BDSM players and they want to sort of explore those like further reaches of play. I, I think that uh, people are into fear play um of all kinds because it does tend to like activate the autonomic nervous system Mm. uh, that like both like fight or flight and uh like rest and digest Mm -hmm. (laughs) and Mm -hmm. that Mm -hmm. kind of like that like seesaw between those things and the search for homeostasis that can be really intoxicating to a lot of people i think that also people are turned on by these fantasies of force and control uh you know using force on someone being forced like taking control losing control um because we have such an intense rape culture that we're dealing with all the time every day and like it is a way to eroticize the anxieties that Mm. most of us live with all the time Mm. and bdsm can be a really profound place to eroticize anxieties and like work through them through like pleasure and catharsis i mean the last two reasons that you you mentioned are are really kind of interesting to me right that the one is the sort of the the impact of it on your nervous system right it's like Mm -hmm. it's the way that it kind of hones you in into what's happening in the most sort of acute and profound way you can't ignore like it's very hard to daydream or get distracted in an intense scenario than if you're just having your regular sex that you know very well and you kind of put is predictable and and in that way and 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 this is not to this is not in any way to devalue in any of these activities it's just that there's a way that your nervous system kind of becomes uh, much more activated in in on edge play right i think that's definitely something that 
in, in a physical way that I can see why people seek that experience um, and i also really like this idea of knowing that it's a reaction to the rape culture it's a way to alleviate the anxiety because we even uh, until very very recently some of our popular fiction the relationship with men and women are depicted in in this kind of consensual non-consent way right the the, the famous scenario from star wars where princess sure. is like no 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 and, and he's like but i want to take you and then she, she's like okay <laughs> you know and when, when we look at it now in the modern eyes you're like she just said no multiple times she tried to fight you off and you're insisting and pushing and pushing and and now you got what you want but like is this supposed to feel good right like this is the scenario and i think i think when you then see that on i think on some level i would argue even back then when it was first out there the first time people see i would argue that on some level a part of us realized there is something wrong with it even though it's part of like a most popular culture i think women who saw it even for the first time even though it was culturally acceptable there was a part part of us for a lot of people who went oh i don't know about that and I can see how that anxiety can be worked out in some way in, in, in spaces where you do have control, where you do get to actually set the scene for yourself and, and, and you do get to say, but at the same time you don't, right? And this is the, the juxtaposition that we're talking about. Those really resonated with me. And also I think the verboten, right? That the thing mm-hmm. that's the, the, the taboo, you know, like being there going, not, you know, it's, it's kind of almost, um, I don't know, giving the finger to societal norms and prescriptions yeah. and kind of going, yeah, but no, <laughs> I'm not going to do that. And I'm going to do this thing instead. And I have access to that thing. And this is how, this is how I'm going to play this out. Yeah. Those are definitely res- resonated with me for sure. Yeah. 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 Okay, let me ask this. You know, we said it's playing with fire because it, you know, it, it kind of is. The chances that you're going to hurt yourself, burn yourself, or you're going to set something on fire mm. are, are very much built into the risk and reward that you're calculating, right? Totally. How do we then set this up? How do we then set this play space, this drama, this tension up in a way that we are being as safe as we possibly can be given that we are playing with fire and fire is fire like fire is never going to be 100 safe it is it, 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 you touch it it burns right or it catches something and it's gonna it's gonna get out of control so how, what can we do so that we 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 do our best and we protect ourselves and the people that we're playing with as much as we can again you know bearing in mind that fire is fire Absolutely. I mean, my answer to this question is the same answer that I have for anything involving BDSM. And really, I think that this is useful for any kind of sexual dynamic, which is what I call the three-act structure of BDSM, which is negotiation and interseam communication and aftercare right so you you want to talk ahead of time about what is this desire for everyone involved like so many different things that you that you want to talk about and we'll get into some of the things that you can talk about or that you would want to talk about but essentially like boundaries and desires and curiosity relevant to (laughs) to this podcast but you know like what are what are you curious about like what like what are you curious about in this scenario like what about consensual non-consent 
activates your curiosity. Um, and then with interesting communication, you know, the most like obvious and classic example, um, is the safe word, um, and really having an understanding of like, you know, if it's like yellow and red, like what is the difference between yellow and red? Um, what are some like nonverbal safe words that you can potentially use? Um, there are some people who like to play without safe words. I'm sort of in a place right now where I'm candidly trying to figure out how I feel about the idea of like deliberately choosing to play without a safe word. But essentially, I just think that it's clear that people going back all the way back to what you were saying about um, or what you were asking about, like, how do you want to feel? It's clear to me that folks who want to play without a safe word, there's something that they want to feel that they believe that they can't feel with the use of a safe word. So I think that that's something that I, that I want to remain curious about. Um, mm -hmm. What is that thing that people want to feel? And, and it's a challenge for me because I feel like at this point, the ethics of, of BDSM that like I learned and have been teaching for a, a long time, the safe word is like somewhat like sacred for mm -hmm. lack of a better word. And so, um, uh, so it's an interesting challenge for me and i definitely as i get older i want to like stay open and curious and flexible and not again like not police people who are saying that that is what they want and what works for them and then there's aftercare when we talk about aftercare i think that we tend to talk about consent when it comes to negotiation and things like safe words but we don't talk about consent with regards to aftercare as much, mm -hmm. I think. Mm -hmm. And aftercare is going to look different for every person. So for example, just <laughs> talking about consent and aftercare, mm -hmm. if one person really wants their aftercare to involve being left alone, mm -hmm. and the other person, not out of their own needs, but out of what they think they're supposed to do, like keeps aggressively trying to spend time with that to like take care of that person in person mm -hmm. like i'm not saying that that's necessarily a violation of consent but it is certainly can like make people really uncomfortable mm -hmm. and especially if the person who would prefer to be left alone has been socialized to like be a people pleaser right mm -hmm. like mm -hmm. it's possible that they're actually like not getting the fullness of the experience um mm. because the other person is like harassing them trying to give them <laughs> aftercare right so i think that in negotiation in that first act i think that it's very important that you discuss like what is your style or flavor of aftercare that works for you and it might be different so then like if it's different how are you going to meet in the middle so that you're taking care of one another mm. if it is just two people the other note that i want to make about safety with regards to consensual non-consent is that it's incredibly important that people understand their literal relationship to power, to social power, like in general, but especially like in what is literally being played with in the scene, right? Mm -hmm. So it's incredibly important to think about, you know, all of your intersectional relationships to power you know um like if you don't know now what your relationship is to power in terms of your gender in terms of your race in terms of disability even in terms of class like 
all of these different things. Like if you are the person in the consensual non-consent scenario who, if there's a correspondence between your literal power in society and your figurative power in your scene. So for, I'll make it very blunt. Like Mm -hmm. if you are a man who is interested in being the top in or the dominant in a rape play scenario, like it extra behooves you. I would say that you have an ethical responsibility to make sure that you are unpacking your relationship to that literal power that you have when you are entering into a consensual non-consent scene. So to be clear, I don't think that there's anything wrong with men having rape fantasies where they are the rapist, just like there's nothing wrong with women having rape fantasies where they are the ones being raped. But when you're the person with the power in society, then it is really on you to make sure that the other person is being taken care of. And this is the same thing where like, if you are a white person who has fantasies of having sex slaves, right? Like Mm -hmm. you need to think about your relationship to the word slave Mm -hmm. (laughs) and so on and so forth with like every kind of power dynamic that reflects how power actually works in society, which every power dynamic and archetype does. Sure. Cause that's where the archetypes come from, right? This is where that's exactly into it. Right. Okay. So what you're saying really making me pause and, and it makes sense and I'm trying to think of like, what does that look like? So if a, if a, if a man is sort of having these, let's say he's having a rape fantasy where he's the rapist and it is a fantasy, maybe even shared with his partner who is a, you know, is a, a woman, happens to also have rape fantasies where she's being raped. What can that reckoning look like so that these people are entering into a play space that feels safer? than if that work isn't done. This scenario that we're describing is a happy one because it's about compatibility, right? Mm -hmm. So that's wonderful. And I think that it really just does have to do with, it's just really about negotiation. It's really about talking. It's Mm -hmm. really about about talking. And maybe you don't want to do a lot of talking because you're both excited and you want to get into it i mean you know there's certainly the stereotype that like negotiation kills the mood or negotiation Mm. like takes away the like spontaneity i Mm. personally don't believe that or feel that Mm. i and have not Mm. found that to be the case i feel like Mm. that's part of the like imagination potential of BDSM. Um, But it's just really about talking and demonstrating respect. um, And also, like I was saying, um, like recognizing that consent is not just about, okay, I got consent and now I can do whatever I want. It is also about how are you continuing to communicate about the consent in the scene? Like even as you are giving yourself over to a control dynamic and then how are you taking extra care of one another Mm. when the scene is over Mm -hmm. and like also how are you how are you like distinguishing between the scene in real life you know Mm -hmm. like how are you like how are you kind of like 
honoring the dark places that you're going to and like figuring out how to like on ramp and off ramp Mm. to like integrate in and out of those intense spaces. Mm -hmm. I think the other thing that came up for me as I was listening to what you're explaining is that different, like the differentiation of real life and, and, and play scene is that I imagine as the guy who's the aggressor, who's like playing this rapist role for the, for the, for the play it's kind of maybe breaking it down in his head to understand what really rape is and, and all the ways that it can happen and his potential role in it and to kind of having this dedication for it not to happen in real life. And then with that, with that work done to step into a place where it is sanctioned and celebrated and desired and, 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 and with a clear understanding of this is okay here and it's not okay somewhere else. Well, yeah. I mean, I don't think that that work is ever done and mm-hmm. I don't think that, we need to wait for that work to be done before we start exploring and playing with mm-hmm. it. I think that mm-hmm. account, I think that accountability to like show up to continue to show up for those conversations mm-hmm. in this case is more important than having your like passport stamped mm-hmm. and like your parking validated um, and saying like, now it's okay for me to now that I like, yeah, like have my, I'm just throwing out figurative language here, but like now that I have my like feminist merit badge, (laughs) I can, I can do whatever I want because like, I don't know if you've been paying attention to the um, history of feminism, but like feminists uh, like have not figured out and like do not agree on uh, a lot of things. Um, And consent is one of them. And it also like continues to evolve. So it's like, you do, you really have to like continue, you have to continue your coursework. Um, (laughs) And it doesn't have to, it doesn't have to always feel um, like, like work. um, uh, But, but it, but it's hard. So maybe Mm. it fucking should feel like work. And Mm. another thing that I just really want to make sure to put out there, because we have been talking about like a scenario where like a man is having a rape fantasy and a woman is having a fantasy of being raped. I don't have stats on like whether it is more common for the erotic irony to, to be flipped, to be literal or to be figurative. And I also am always going to take like any kind of stats about sexuality with a grain of salt, because there's so much like confirmation bias and how those studies are done. But I will say anecdotally, like I have seen just as much, if not more scenarios where the person who's used to having power and control wants to experience the catharsis of like surrendering control. Mm-hmm. Um, so in, in this case, that might be like man who has patriarchal sexual power in society, like wanting to experience um, like some kind of loss of mm-hmm. control or being like forced or being humiliated mm-hmm. by, by somebody who has less of that power than they do. And that, uh, that might be a woman um, that might be like, there's certainly like queer configurations of, of that as well, because like you could be a cis man, but you have less power in society um, because you're queer or because you're perceived as mm-hmm. queer. So the idea of like the queer man, like taking power over the heterosexual man could also be a consensual non-consent scenario. Mm-hmm. There are certainly situations where people of color have fantasies of controlling white people. I can certainly see why 
So yeah, things are just as likely to be flipped or warped or twisted um, as they are to be like a literal correspondence. I I personally think that there's like more interesting mm-hmm. dramatic potential in mm-hmm. a story where things are flipped because yeah. then it becomes about the unexpected or it becomes about like mystery or surprise and mm-hmm. those things actually are what tends to animate the erotic in my experience. But, you know, I also think that like, we need to, we need to make space to the people who are more literal minded in their sexuality. They deserve satisfaction to you. <laughs> sure. Okay. Let me ask this question. then. Um, so we talked about there's playing with fire. We talked about how we can make things safer and um, what about when we get burned or we set mm. something on fire? Because you can make an argument that it is kind of inevitable at some point if you keep playing with fire. That's where the three-act structure of BDSM communication like comes into play. Like I was just mm. saying with a safe word, like all of those things are there, not in a like perfunctory way because we're like virtue signaling we like think that we are supposed to like they're Mm -hmm. tools they're useful Mm -hmm. helpful tools right Mm -hmm. so you start like playing a a scene where you are the like desired goddess and someone is um is worshiping you and in worshiping you they become like so overwhelmed by your beauty and desirability that they start like ravishing you mm-hmm. you've negotiated this scene you you know that you want to th- this is a way that you feel like you might feel as desired as you want to the <laughs> desiring to be desired feeling like you desire to feel desired um and like on and on the meta context and then all of a sudden something that somebody says is really triggering to you and that's when you use your safe word and it might be that you use you know your version of of yellow whatever it is the sort Mm -hmm. of slow down safe word um that is not totally the like pulling the rip cord of saying mm-hmm. red and you say yellow and you're like this is totally like everything about this is great except i need you to stop using the word i'm trying to think of an example now i need you to um stop calling me stupid stop calling me stupid is a mm-hmm. great one right mm-hmm. so um i you, somebody has said like call me a bunch of degrading words mm-hmm. like we don't have to get into a checklist of which ones you know we don't have to have a spreadsheet of <laughs> of like which and you know and if you want to have a spreadsheet go for it um uh, i certainly endorse that but you know you haven't gone through like every possible like uh, version uh, or iteration of mm. degrading language, but then someone, you know, someone is saying you're a worthless little slut. And then all of a sudden they say you're a stupid bitch and you're like yellow. <laughs> everything about this, everything about this is great. Just please don't call me stupid. Please don't use the word stupid anymore. And like, to get into the finer details of BDSM communication, now that we're talking about it, like this is a moment where as the top in the scenario, as the person who 
is is not the person who used the safe word, but who the person who now has an ethical responsibility to listen to the person who did use the safe word. Like this is not the moment now to be like, oh my God, like we need to stop. I'm so sorry. Can you Mm. now make me feel better about the fact that I got into the heat of the moment and said stupid. Now Mm. I'm the one that feels stupid. I'm stupid. You know, it's like, Mm. like it could be that you now feel so bad or embarrassed that you caused your partner to need to use their safe word that like you, you now need to say for it and you need to start the scene. You need to stop the scene. That is totally fine. Like anything could happen, but if everyone involved actually does want to continue in the scenario, but you like want to make the person who you bruised slightly now, like make you feel better for bruising them like that's um that's really annoying especially it's just annoying mm-hmm. especially again if you're if you are then in that moment like replicating your like literal like um like social power or if mm-hmm. you are say a, a man who is trying to make a woman make him feel better about hurting her in the first place you see what mm-hmm. i'm saying sure yeah absolutely um, i get that yeah yeah sure. yeah even having like language around uh, you know, and on all of this stuff, like a safe word, it's just like, it's a secret language. Like mm-hmm. people think of it as like, oh, this is like boring and tedious as safety. Is so boring. It's like wearing mm-hmm. a seatbelt, like yada, yada. But like, if you can start to think of it as like, like a fun, like mm-hmm. secret language that you sure. have with your partner, then that is also like a part of the play. Um, sure. And mm-hmm. then maybe you're going to be like, okay, like maybe even having language that, essentially means you good you good to keep going and and, you know in the case of the traffic light scenario that might be green like Mm -hmm. you know you're ready to give the green light and then you can like get right back to it you know but then there also might be a situation you know again going back to the idea of like you're playing with fire and then you like set your house on fire Mm -hmm. things might come up in aftercare that are surprising and unexpected and Mm -hmm just need to continue to show up for each other. And also, by the way, tops need aftercare. You know, this is, Mm -hmm. I can't can't Mm -hmm. stress this enough. Um, Sometimes actually being the powerful person in this erotic scenario can bring up a ton of emotions as well. Um, So it's really um, like recognizing that like everyone deserves both ethical considerations and also care and that that is going to look different for everyone. And the way that you find out how it looks for you is that you ask (laughs) and you talk and you, and you talk about it. Sure. Yeah. And I think some of it is also experimentation, right? Because at the beginning of all of this, you have an idea of what is it that you kind of want and you following your instincts and senses and you are a little bit, you know, filling your way through the in, into in the dark, and you are discovering yourself also. And I think things might not be as clear at the beginning as they might be, you know, a year into doing this. Totally. And I think maybe having some, maybe like slowing down, taking your time, having some grace around grace with yourself and your your partner your, or your partners around. Okay, we're all kind of trying to figure it out. And allowing the space for that as well. And, and you know, I've definitely, per- my personal journey and also people that I've 
work with, you know, one of the most common things that I hear is I don't know what I want. I don't know what I need. Yeah. I, I, I hear this over and over again from friends, from clients, and sometimes with myself. Like I, I you know, with my, with my own relationships, I'll get to a place. I'm like, right now, I don't know what I want. and I don't know what I need. Yeah. And those times that there needs to be some space and grace around figuring it out. And I think that is even more pertinent when you're playing with fire. <laughs> I completely agree with that. So, Tina, this was truly insightful and a lot of information. It's, I think it's one of those episodes that I'm actually going to, I'm looking forward to the editing. Like I want to go back, transcribe the whole thing, go through it and reflect on everything that we talked about because I think there was so much new information in there. And I think when we talked about the topic of consensual non-consent, you know, the conversation that we had around the team is like, oh, okay, so we're just going to talk about rape fantasies. And I think what we talked about is so much more expansive than that. And there's so much more insight into that. And even though people who are listening right now who have no interest in consensual non-consent, I think there is so much information in there to think about our sexuality, even if it's, even if it's like beautiful, delicious Madagascan vanilla. And that <laughs> we can make that a deeper experience and more insightful experience that we get to know ourselves and our partners better and we don't necessarily have to go into the edge players but i think there's there's something there for everyone to really reflect on their sexual experience and expression so i, I really appreciate your insight and, and your wisdom around that you're welcome to connect with tina horn jump on instagram at tina horn sass or visit her website tinahorn.net if you'd like to listen to more episodes on kink and sexual exploration, check out the new episode drop email from Curious Fox in your inbox where you'll find show notes, links mentioned on the show, along with other episode suggestions that we think you'd love. If you're not getting those, you are missing out. So jump on our website, wearecuriousfoxes.com and sign up to the newsletter. And of course, while you're there, check out the blog posts and resources and reading list recommendations and more. If you want to weigh in on this topic or connect with other Foxy listeners, head to Facebook and join our Facebook group at We Are Curious Foxes. If you find this episode interesting and helpful, please share our podcast with a friend. Quickly rate the show, leave a comment or subscribe on Apple Podcasts, follow us on Spotify or connect with the show however it makes sense on your favorite podcast app. This will take a second of your time and it will have a big impact on us. To support the show, join us on patreon.com forward slash we are curious foxes, where you can also find mini episodes, podcast extras, and over 50 videos from educated led workshops. Go to patreon.com forward slash we are curious foxes. And let us know that you're listening by sharing a comment, story, or a question by emailing us or sending us a voice memo to listening at wearecuriousfoxes.com. This episode is produced by Effie Blue with help from Yamur Arkisha. Our editor is Nina Pollock, who supports all our audio fantasies without judgment. Our intro music is composed by Dev Saha. We are so grateful for their work, and we're grateful to you for listening. As always, stay curious, friends. Curious Fox Podcast is not and will never be the final word on any topic. We solely aim to encourage curiosity and provide a space for exploration through connection and story. We encourage you to listen with an open and curious mind and we'll look forward to your feedback. Stay curious, friends. Stay curious. 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 Stay curious.